Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, I do pray that you help me to preach with, uh, with clarity today. And I pray that you help each of us to hear your word, God. Help us uh, to, be, to understand what we hear and to be transformed in our inner being uh, by your ministry in us through your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, guys, before I continue, um, can everyone hear okay? Yes. Yeah, lovely. <laughs> well, I'm going to start us off in a strange way today. Do you guys have a memory of the times when a highly sought-after iPhone release resulted in huge numbers of people queuing outside Apple stores in cities around the world? Can you remember people camping in freezing conditions, just waiting to buy the newest model before it sold out? I was like, I don't know. When I think of that, I think it's fairly crazy. But uh, if you're willing, I want you to join me in using your imaginations this morning. Imagine that all of us are devoted Apple fans. Maybe hard, but work with me. Imagine that for as long as each of us has had phones, each of us has stuck dutifully only with Apple devices. And as loyal customers, we hear about Apple's upcoming phone. They've called it the iPhone Ultimate. It promises to be the only phone that you'll ever need for the rest of your life. Fancy technology in the phone constantly updates it, and Apple guarantees that this will keep your phone the most advanced on the market for the rest of your life. So, as you can appreciate, the price tag is steep, the numbers are reported to be severely limited, and so each one of us, being as keen as we are, prepays the hefty price tag to guarantee that this unbelievable phone ends up in our hands and not someone else's. We queue overnight at the Apple store in Charlestown. Imagine us on that cold, tiled area, trying to stay comfortable and warm our camping chairs. And the store is due to open soon. And then, all at once, each of our phones gets the same notification. Ah, it's a message from Apple. The CEO has decided that because he thinks this iPhone is so amazing, everybody to be able to have one. The message explains that as soon as Apple Store is open today, no queues will be recognized. Everyone can just come straight in. Everyone will get the iPhone Ultimate. And those who haven't yet paid, get their phone for free. Because we've paid already, none of us will get a refund. But to get the iPhone Ultimate, with all the features and all the subscriptions included, one simply needs to come in and ask. What an amazing deal. No one loses out. But I have the suspicion that it would leave most of us who have been camping overnight feeling fairly annoyed. We've been devoted, we've spent savings, we've inv invested plenty of time to ensure we'd be the exclusive group of this amazing product. But there would also be this horde of very, very happy people who were getting a very sweet deal, which they hadn't even been looking for. Now, it's a silly, it's an insufficient metaphor. Despite the passion of many people and the heavy price tag for many iPhones, at the end of the day, they're just short-lived gadgets that waste heaps of time when we aren't using them to uh, connect with other people. But I wanted to evoke some sense of emotion. Um, I hope that by imagining ourselves lined up as these fanatical Apple fans, we might get the faintest sense of the Jewish longing for their saviour investing themselves at great cost as they awaited the anticipated uh, Messiah. If the idea of waiting overnight for a phone seems onerous, 
Consider that Abraham was given promises by God 2,000 years before Christ came. So think of the many generations longing for the day when these promises would materialize. They were to be a people set apart for God, living lives that were different from surrounding nations and honoring to God. And the obedience required uh, cost them a great deal. Year after year, they would try, try, try to keep the sacrifices and the other requirements of God's law given to them through Moses. And after millennia of waiting, with Christ coming, it boiled down to this. Whoever wants salvation can have it, free of charge, without restriction, simply by asking. It's fantastically scandalous, and we, as non-Jews Zooming together today, we are all divine Q-jumpers. And so in a very simple way, this is why Paul was in prison, where he's writing the, the letter um, to the church in Ephesus. He was suggesting that Gentiles could access salvation without the intricate Jewish system. People like you and I can skip on circumcision and burnt animals. We don't have to hassle with rules about blended linen and the cutting of sideburns. And we jump straight into intimacy with God. It's still as scandalous as ever, but in the Ephesians day, it was totally foreign, totally unexpected news. For context, um, I hope it's helpful for me to back up a little bit to where we've been in the letter to the church in Ephesus so far in the first two chapters, and then I'll walk us through today's passage. Today's verses, I think you'll have noticed that they're a little bit convoluted, but they're still helpful and they're still very much the inspired word of God. So the first half of Ephesians, that's chapters one to three, contains this really dense explanation of the gospel and how God planned salvation and indeed how the history of how salvation has been unfolded. So in these three richly theological chapters, Paul unpacks some of the beauty of God's great plan to unify every people group and everything in the entire universe through Christ, the Messiah. The first three chapters remind us that as non-Jewish or Gentile readers, um, it reminds us about the events described in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit um, descended and allowed all people to participate in salvation. And what was initially offered to the Jews through Abraham is now available to all who receive the forgiveness and grace offered through the death and resurrection of Christ. You might remember the rich opening uh, where Paul describes how in Christ we are chosen, adopted, redeemed, that we have an inheritance. In Christ, God uses his mighty power to make us alive, to bring us near, to prepare us for good works and to allow us to find peace with our enemies, to become a dwelling place for God, as God brings the entire universe to his intended fulfillment. Paul wants his readers to know Christ and to experience the power of the gospel. The power available to us is the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead and made him king. In chapter 2, Paul described how spiritually dead people are made alive because of God's love and grace. It explained that we are now a new people with a new reason and a new way to live. And Paul introduced a radical idea of family that will get unpacked in today's passage. Jewish people were historically, as I said, separated, set apart, chosen by God and intended to be highly distinct from other nations. And in the last section of chapter 2, Paul starts to explain that now as Gentiles, we get to join the ethnic Jews and all other ethnicities to become 
a new and better family. God's chosen people are now amazingly diverse, and yet he enables us to live in peace with one another. He'll use uh, chapter 3, verse 6 to explain more clearly and emphasize this crucial teaching, which would have been difficult to comprehend for both Jews and Gentiles. So the start of our passage reads slightly strange, slightly disjointed. This is how it begins. It says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, he's, he's beginning to pray for them in light of what he's just shared in chapter 2. But no sooner than he starts to pray, he pauses his prayer until verse 14. The easiest way to explain what happens is this. As Paul begins to pray for them, he gets so excited at the mention of the Gentiles that he's praying for that he spends the next 12 verses unpacking what he had begun to explain in chapter 2. So this pause in prayer is a precious spirit-inspired detour, which we'll look at both this week and next week. Um, the fact that Paul was suffering in jail and unable to carry out his planned journey was a source of substantial discouragement to the church that was reading it. This passage is intended by Paul to be pastorally helpful to these new Gentile Christians to help them to be assured that God was actually at work by presenting a number of essential realities to them. So we know that Paul was imprisoned under Caesar's government. He, he was imprisoned under the Emperor Nero, who was just one of the most notoriously cruel people in the history of the world. He had spent, Paul had spent two years imprisoned in Caesarea and then another two years imprisoned in Rome under this regime. However, Paul didn't consider himself Caesar's prisoner. Fancy that. Four years in prison doesn't fancy himself Caesar's prisoner. Here's Paul's logic. The emperor Nero, Nero could not detain him unless God allowed it. No government could ever stop him preaching the gospel for which he was jailed. He was a prisoner, but he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And this is Paul's source of joy and confidence. His imprisonment or freedom didn't ultimately depend on his Roman guards or even Caesar himself. I like what the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us uh, in its first the answer to its first question uh, about this biblical truth. It says, God preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a single hair can fall from my head. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. God would do with Paul and accomplish through Paul whatever he pleased. Paul had long possessed a willingness to risk and sacrifice his freedom for the sake of the gospel. In fact, all the way back at the time of his calling, Paul gave, uh, God gave Paul a message through Ananias. That was the man who was sent to meet him after his conversion in Acts 9.16. Ananias was told of Paul that he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. The message included a warning that God would show Paul how much he must suffer for my name. Paul was told to expect suffering and prepared by God to find grace, peace, and even delight in the squalor of a Roman jail. In verses 3 and 5 from today's passage, Paul makes a substantial effort to persuade the church and to emphasize that the message about God's mystery in verse 6 is not his message. God reveals this message to Paul through the Holy Spirit. Paul said from verse 3, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written. 
when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What Paul now writes is a message that he would have openly rejected in his former life as a Jewish teacher. It's a message that Paul could have never come up with himself or worked out without God's revelation through the Holy Spirit. Remember that in Acts 9, when God saved Paul by blinding him on the Damascus Road, Paul was literally on his way to hunt down and kill followers of Jesus. God has radically transformed Paul. He was once willing to kill to stop this message, and now he's willing to be tortured himself for it so that it can continue. Paul understands that anything accomplished through this message would also be by the power of the Holy Spirit, acting through the power and signs and wonders by word and deed, as Romans 15, 19 explains. So Paul understands he has this stewardship, this special responsibility. It's a task given to him by God. And even though that means he's now proclaiming it while chained to a guard in a revolting prison block, he still considers it God's grace and kindness. In this little passage, Paul speaks twice about the mystery of Christ in verse 3 and verse 5. By this, Paul means that God has revealed to him something that has remained hidden until now. So this mystery is the gospel's application to the Gentiles. He explains it clearly in Colossians 1, 25 to 27. If you guys want to follow along, I, hopefully the um, the scriptures are up in the chat box. So um, just look on that little that little speech bubble down the bottom and you hopefully can follow along. So Colossians 1, 25 to 27. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to all his saints. To them, God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches, the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's a staggering concept, and it was hard to grasp for both the Jews and the Gentiles, but even though it was partially hidden, God had given the Jews some expectation that their God would minister to the wider world through them. To help us grasp what this mystery was for the Jews, based on what God had revealed already, uh, we'll walk through some scriptures. So beginning in Genesis 12, God introduced a promise to make Israel a great nation and a blessing to the world. Now, after Abraham's ready obedience and his willingness to sacrifice his cherished son Isaac, in Genesis 22:18, God said, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And unfortunately, those of us that know the story know that God's chosen people needed frequent reminding of what God was doing amongst them and reminding them to, to be a set-apart people. So Deuteronomy 7, 6-9 explains, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. And he humbles them too. He says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and he's keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. I like that. The Lord loves you because he loves you and he chose you. Isaiah prophesied about Christ. Uh, we see this in uh, chapter 11, uh, verse 1 and 2. He says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. 
In verse 9, he starts to talk about Christ impacting the nations. Isaiah says, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him the nations shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Isaiah 60, verse 3, Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And Isaiah 66, 18, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And so it was that the Jewish people had this rich knowledge of these scriptures, but that those who did know them fully expected a future time when the Gentiles would come to faith. And Romans 15, 8, 13, uh, Paul explains it this way. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then Paul summarizes a raft of Old Testament references to this moment that should also be in the chat box. He quotes, As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even though even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him were the Gentiles hope. May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Paul's reminding uh, his readers that uh, Scripture is fulfilled in Christ and that the expectation this mystery has been long implanted um, in the Jewish um, mindset. So with Christ's coming, and the teaching of Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it allowed Gentiles to recognize that they were invited to be fellow heirs with God's people. As God's heirs, they were entitled to all of the inheritance that was promised by God. Everything promised by God to the Jews was theirs too. And even more, they were also invited to be fellow members of the body. And this, I think, was a struggle for the Jews because they were willing to partially accept Gentiles who came and adopted all of the ceremonial rules, like the men would be circumcised and they had to keep all the purity laws and the moral laws. They had to offer the sacrifices. They had to eat only kosher foods, which meant they had to like give up on their bacon habit or whatever. Uh, but at best, if a Gentile believed and fully conform to Judaism, if they just did all of the things that Jews must do, they would be partially accepted, at best, as second-class citizens. But here Paul is talking about radical acceptance. They are equal members. They also have full entitlement to the promises made by God to ethnic Israel, who were the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it's fair to say that all who, calls, all who God calls to himself from various nationalities reveal by true faith that they are actually among God's chosen. This message is very much the reason that Paul was in prison. The Jewish leaders lost it when Paul suggested that the Jewish nation would no longer be God's sole focus, that God was willing to uh, add people from every ethnicity, every part of the globe, and that they would form a unified church who accepted everyone and anyone who called on the name of the Lord. The message that infuriated the Jewish leaders is Paul's delight. In Christ and in the gospel, Gentiles have 
everything that was promised to God's people of old. They have the inheritance, members of the family, they have the promises. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but to, to me, sometimes texts like this seem uh, really far away. Paul's explaining to a local church and surrounding churches a brand new concept that we're now really quite familiar with 2,000 years later. But first of all, this familiar, long-revealed mystery that we as non-Jews can have full and equal access to God is worth marveling at intensely. It is something that Scripture says the prophets strain to see and the angels long for. And now the Spirit-revealed word is translated into 1,500 global languages. And it's vividly revealed worldwide in hearts of every believer through the indwelling presence and work of the Holy Spirit. That God allows us to grasp these things concerning salvation is amazing. I think we can be very thankful that we didn't need to adopt Judaism to access God. On one hand, the Old Testament ceremonial system is onerous. Mm -hmm. Much more than that, it's completely impossible for sinful people to obey perfectly, and that's what God requires is perfection. I think that perfection is only possible in Christ if we're found in Christ as we, as we know. But by God's grace, non-Jews are not second-class citizens. There was a setup in the old temple where non-Jewish people were relegated to an outside courtyard, the, the broader group of Jewish believers were allowed further inside to the main part of the temple. But in the center, in the innermost part of the temple, was a place called the Holy of Holies. And this area was only accessible to one priest once a year after very, very careful obedience um, uh, to this extraordinary process of sacrifice and purification. So as the high priest passed through the thick uh, curtain that divided this area off, he would enter fearing for his life because if he had not correctly followed God's instruction for preparation and conduct in the Holy of Holies, he would be struck down by God. Now, no other person was even allowed to enter. So the high priest had to tie a rope around his waist and the rope would trail back outside the curtain so that if he made a mistake, the other worshippers could drag out his dead body. It's fair to say that it was not easy to approach God at this time. Layers of separation made approaching God nearly impossible, particularly for uh, non-Jewish believers. But at the time of Christ's death, the thick curtain of separation um, to the Holy of Holies was torn in two, removing the barrier for both Jews and non-Jews. And we all have full access to God. We don't need a prophet. We don't need a priest. It was quite remarkable uh, a few weeks ago in light of coronavirus that the Pope himself said that Catholic believers did not need a priest to access God, that they could go straight to God, which is quite remarkable in church history. But we know that we can call out to God whenever we'd like, just like we'd call out to a loving, a loving dad. Now, I'm an imperfect dad, but when I hear Abigail wake up, and when I hear her call out, I jump to be with her. It's my delight to respond to her when she cries for me. But God is far more attentive than I could ever be or any of us could ever be. And that's such a tremendous blessing that we can have the benefit of just being able to approach him directly. 
One of the other beautiful things about the inclusion of Gentiles to be a part of God's family, God's chosen people, is that it is the most diverse and beautiful group of people that the world has ever mustered. Imagine this. Inuits, Ethiopians, Palms, Papua New Guineans, Novocastrians, Swiss, Japanese, Swedish, Mexicans, on and on, even Americans. Can you imagine all the nations of the world worshipping in every spoken language, standing beside us, praising our King together? Our passage reminds us of some things that are tremendous privileges and should be just as stirring to our hearts as we consider them today as they were to the original church in Ephesus who received the scroll. In these strange times, how can we think helpfully like the imprisoned Paul as he responded in difficult circumstances? You guys are well aware that we faced unprecedented changes to our lives. Not being able to hang out with our mates, half the shops closed, toilet paper rationing, lots of video calls, even Zoom church. We're definitely not in a Roman prison, but if we're honest, it has been hard for each of us. Across the globe, people have had to uh, wrestle with the prospect of potentially getting sick with something that could kill them or, or kill people they love. People have had to wrestle with significant aspects of their life. Questions spring up, I think, in, 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 in the quiet, like, are my friendships as deep and as close as, as, I, as I want? Was my job too important to me? What meaning is there in life? I, I think in some way that we're all reminded of the inevitability of sickness in this life. You know, we won't live forever. We realize how fragile life is us and for, uh, is for us and the people we care about. And we're challenged to think about what really matters, about what is of eternal importance. Because the mystery of Christ's salvation has come to us, we're able to face these questions head on. Instead of grasping for our own answers, having to make them up or find an expert to go to, God himself enlightens us. With Christ's coming and the explosion of the church around the world, we've also been given the complete scripture, the divinely inspired word of God, is revealed through the Holy Spirit, and it's been given to people all around the globe to give us the help that we need. And because it's breathed out by God, it's perfect. It transcends history. It transcends culture. As it says of itself, it's able to teach and to train and to correct all people all around the world across all of time. The Holy Spirit illuminates the hearts of believers worldwide, helping us to understand the word that we read and to live lives that are pleasing to him in response. (coughs) Our passage also offers an example of um, the Spirit's work enabling Paul to apply the truths of Scripture in hard times. So Paul reminds Christians that we are in a unique position in uncertain times. Scripture exhorts us to rejoice because it reminds us that God is sovereignly at work. Paul emphasizes that God has a plan, and for us, this this season of social distancing is indeed every much part of God's plan. Like Paul, we can anticipate that God will use this time to refine us and the church. I expect that this time will serve to sanctify true believers and clarify the thinking of unsaved who have been attending churches. 
I anticipate that some people will be pushed away, at least for a time. And, and it's my hope that God will stir other unbelievers to desire a relationship with him in a way that they never have before. I expect that many non-believers, when slowed down by our governments, uh, may question life's priorities and think carefully about what matters. And I think that many people facing the threat of this novel coronavirus will start having novel thoughts about the saving God. I pray that many will seek Christ. I think because of our society's excessive confidence in medicine, uh, the presence of a tiny virus, which has been able to kill 240,000 people despite medicine's best efforts, sobering. It should remind us of how fragile our lives are. So utterly dependent, we need God. And I expect that right around the world, God will use Christians to witness faithfully. I anticipate that the global church will grow because of what God's doing. I long to hear people testify that out of the fear of infection and of all the changes that we're going through and the personal hardship, I pray that many will testify that God used a little virus to change my heart and faithful Christians who pointed me to Christ. Andrea shared um, this little uh, reflection with me. Uh, it was this, consider the spread of COVID-19 spread to you know, maybe 200 countries around the world, and then consider the message of Christ. It's a message which goes completely against our nature and requires willing people who want to pass it on message of Christ has spread to every country on the planet. And as we think about how far and wide this virus has spread, let us reflect that God's grace and his mercy spreads infinitely more. Friends, the mystery of the gospel has been revealed to us. God has shared his invitation with everyone. For every person across the world who accepts God's invitation, we are reminded by Ephesians 3.6 that we are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So I pray that this week, having spent some time thinking about this text, you might consider how even in prison, Paul was able to trust in God's sovereign purposes. And even from prison, he boldly shared the gospel. Now, Obviously, Paul was in prison, and so he couldn't see people. So he wrote to them, and I think that we need to be a little bit creative about thinking about how we connect with people, and I think that we've all been doing that in various ways. But Paul was deeply encouraged because he trusted that God uses all things for the good of those who love him. And I pray, as Paul was chained, we're chained kind of in a way to whatever place the government allows us to be in, but I pray that Paul's passion and his care for the church and his love for the lost and his determination to be fully used by God would be equally true of each of us during this strange season. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you um, for your word. Um, we thank you um, for the blessing it is to be part of a fellowship, that we are part of, of your body, that we are heirs um, uh, to, to the promises that we have been grafted in with, with ethnic Israel. Um, Lord, I pray that um, as we meditate on these things and as we spend time,
catching up with each other, Lord, would you encourage us? Would you lift our spirits, Lord, for, for those amongst us who are weary, um, depressed, um, anxious, um, or, or overwhelmed, Lord, I pray that you'd minister to our needs. Lord, I pray that you'd help uh, and use us to encourage uh, one another. Um, we pray for wisdom for our government in this time. Um, we pray too for Shem and Grace that as they travel back from that their time away, that Lord, you'd um, keep them safe as they travel. Uh, Lord, I pray that um, you'd bring them back uh, refreshed and um, ready to continue ministering as they have been. Uh, Lord, I pray that you help each of us to, to minister faithfully in the places where you've put us. So, um, Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, in Jesus' name, amen.